When you think of paediatrics, a topic that probably isn't too far from your mind's eye is pyrexia. Feverish kids are an incredibly common presentation to ambulance services, and whether it's calming anxious parents down as their little one recovers from a febrile convulsion, or wrestling with a toddler who really doesn't want to take their cowpole, if you're listening to this podcast, one thing we're certain of is that at some point, you've assessed the child with fever. Unwell children are a topic that can generate a reasonable level of anxiety for paramedics. They're difficult to assess, they can't give a history themselves, and they're remarkably unforgiving when you're not able to name your favourite Paw Patrol character. That's why this month we're looking at feverish kids. We're going to cover the causes of fever, history taking, assessment of the unwell child, as well as discussing the potential management plans for them. It should make for some hot conversation. So let's get started. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. So hello and welcome to another episode of General Broadcast. My name's Josh, I'm a specialist paramedic in critical care. My name's Simon, I'm an advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. My name's Alex, I'm a paramedic operations officer. Yeah, hi, my name is Dr. Waji Katam, please call me Waj. I'm a local paediatrics consultant in the Southwest. Brilliant, and thanks so much for joining us, uh, Waj. You're going to be really useful and, and add so much um, so much benefit to, to the topic that we're talking about today, which is paediatrics and fever. So uh, why don't Simon and you tell us a little bit about why this is an important topic to cover and... Uh, why we want paramedics to know a bit more about it. Uh, absolutely. Um, Simon, do you want to start? Yeah, so I think um, like fever's obviously one of, if not the most common presentation that occurs to urgent and emergency care services uh, in the UK. So um, it's something that paramedics are going to be faced with really, really commonly. And I don't know about my colleagues, but paediatrics wasn't always trained at university as and in as much depth as it could have been and I think that there's some people in the country paramedics that don't have a massive amount of um, if, if any training in peds so I think it's really good that we sort of develop this area of practice. Absolutely yeah I, I couldn't agree more I mean this is one of the most common presentations in, the, in, in acute paediatrics medicine and one of the um, most interesting topics of conversation um, with uh, various medical professionals, and that includes paramedics and paramedics technicians, because I I haven't got the data, but I would um, uh, imagine that um, the majority of of calls to to emergency services uh, when it comes to children, especially in the winter months, uh, would definitely involve a febrile child. Yeah, and we were just talking about this uh, off air that actually in in writing and preparing for today, fever is such a diverse topic and and there's so much to talk about that it, it's going to be very difficult to fit into one podcast. But I think that's one one of the nice things about talking about it as as the presentation of fever, because uh, there's, there's so many things that you need to think about and exclude. Actually, it, it, it's quite nice to... Um, to put some of those in order and, and and bring a sense of order to some of the things that uh, that we need to be looking at. Yeah, we we see fever all the time uh, still on the radio, especially at this time of year. And and you're right, Simon. You know the university the university training is is 
fantastic and and you know the training that you get on the road but it does tend to be very heavily centered around uh, the critically ill child or, or pediatric resuscitation which is um you know obviously really really important but um there's not a huge amount of concentration on on fever and the sort of mild to moderately ill child and I think that's really important to cover because I don't know if Waj would agree with me, but probably back in your days when you were a registrar, Raj, and you did work in, in the emergency department seeing children, would you agree that actually a lot of well children with minor self-limiting illnesses are conveyed and probably could be managed at home or by a primary or urgent care as opposed to emergency care? Generally, yeah, generally speaking, I, I, I do agree with that. But we just kind of have to kind of get the terminology absolutely spot on. When it comes to well children, when we say a well child, we refer to a child who has a minor illness. So a minor illness means that, you know, the vast majority of them have a viral infection. Most of them are respiratory, either upper or lower respiratory tract infections. Um, And sometimes uh, it presents as a um, gastroenterological problem. Um, so, so, you know, for the purposes of getting everything absolutely spot on, when we say a well child, we refer, we're referring to children who have minor or mild, um, viral infections. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's the, that's the thing that we need to differentiate, isn't it? The, the well self-limiting and minor illness from the maybe more severe like sepsis and bacterial infections that might need a little bit more input. That's sort of my experience of, of, of assessing. I absolutely agree. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it certainly sounds like we've got an awful lot to cover in this podcast. So let's get started. Simon, do you want to start us off with the pathophysiology of fever? So fever is an elevated core body temperature as part of a host-regulated physiological response to infection. And that's normally from a viral or bacterial pathogen. But an understanding that fever is physiological and a normal response from the body is actually something that we can take as reassuring. I think a lot of people feel that it's actually something that the bacteria or virus does to the body, but it's not. It's actually our body's response and it's, it's actually a positive thing because it's fighting an infection. And this is in quite stark contrast to like a pathological hypothermia, such as heat exhaustions, where that's actually an elevated body temperature due to um, sort of dysfunction. And that's why we manage them very differently. So it's important that we differentiate between infection and these other types of hypothermias. Fever occurs as a result of the effects of endogenous or exogenous pyrogens, which signal the hypothalamus to increase the body's thermoregulatory set point. Endogenous pyrogens, such as cytokines, produced from our immune response, occur because invading organisms trigger them, whereas exogenous pyrogens come from the microbe itself. These pyrogens then assert their effect by causing prostaglandin E2 to change the set point of the hypothalamus. These various mechanisms then begin to start for us to raise our body temperatures, such as shivering due to acetylcholine release in the muscles, peripheral vasoconstriction to bring blood back to the core, piloerection to trap air on the skin, and sort of warm-seeking behaviours such as putting on clothes and wrapping up in layers. 
Yeah, and there's other there's other non-infectious causes of fever as well, obviously, such as uh, cancer, auto-inflammatory conditions, and, and Kawasaki's disease, which uh, generally speaking, we're not really going to be talking about in this episode, uh, I believe, except possibly uh, Kawasaki's disease a little bit later on. I, I think a good starting point when we're talking about fever might be if we could, if we could have a look at perhaps a definition of, of what counts as fever. I think that's really complicated because it depends what textbook you read. My experience, and I don't know if Wadge would agree with me, is, is anything over 38 degrees? The definitions have, have changed significantly from when I was a medical student until about now. I would generally classify any temperature over 37.5 as fever, and anything above 38 would definitely be clinically significant and would usually trigger a medical assessment of some description. It doesn't have to be a pediatrician. But it has to have, you have to have a medical assessment. One thing that I've learned in pediatrics as well is that actually fever at different ages is treated completely differently. So children under three months and then those three to six months, we, we worry a little bit more about fever in them, whereas children over six months, we, we worry less. Definitely. Um, so one of the things that gets um, drilled into every pediatrics medicine practitioner is the um, traffic light system when it comes to, a, to the acute medical assessment um, of a pediatrics patient. And the most important part of it is the temperature of 30, uh, 38 and above in a child under the age of three months is definitely a red flag, regardless of any other associating symptom. The other red flag would be a temperature above 39 in a child who's younger than six months of age. Especially given the current climate uh you know in, in terms of everything that's going on with the with the pandemic uh the term high fever is uh, is being used a lot is that a term that th- that we like is there a specific definition for what we would consider a high fever the absolute number isn't usually an indication of how severe the um, the condition is i would give a very simple example of this when you're assessing a child with febrile convulsions for example one of the things that tend to worry paramedics and nursing staff and uh, and non-pediatrics practitioners is if the temperature is high. So say, for example, if you've got a temperature of 39.5 or 40, um, a lot of people would worry that this might trigger a febrile convulsion, when in fact, it's the speed at which the temperature goes up. So say, for example, if the temperature goes up from 38 to 38.5, quickly enough, it can trigger a seizure. And that's the the most important aspect of, of fever when it comes to assessing the febrile child. The absolute number, uh, for me, from a practical sense, is, is not as important as examining the child and finding out if there are any other associating symptoms. The numbers would usually indicate that there's something that you need, that you need to, to, to look at. But generally speaking, numbers in pediatrics medicine do not mean as much as they do in in adult medicine. So let's talk a little bit about how we get that number. So Simon, we might want to acquire a temperature slightly differently in different age children. Do you want to talk a little bit about how we'll be taking a temperature? Yeah, so from a guideline perspective, NICE recommends that infants under the age of four weeks, a temperature should be recorded with an electronic thermometer in the axilla. So that's directly on the skin under the armpit. We leave it there. And then obviously we, we take the temperature that way. And then in children age four weeks to five years, it can be measured by either an infrared tympanic thermometer 
or an electronic or chemical dot thermometer in the axilla. What it does advocate um, or, or does insist on is that forehead chemical thermometers are unreliable and should not be used. So I think that's really important. Hopefully all ambulance services now have got the correct kit. But just remember that obviously electronic infrared tympanic thermometers can't be used in under four weeks. That being said, though, I, from my experience, I've struggled to get a tympanic thermometer into the ear of a child that's, well, older than four weeks, but say younger than six months. It's worth bearing in mind that the anatomy of the uh, of the ear canal changes dramatically from six months of age up to five years of age. It's not always um, easy to, to examine the ear canals, you know, and visualize the tympanic membrane when you're actually examining the child's ear. So the technique in, uh, that you have to rely on um, in a child, say, for example, at three, four, five six months of age and the manipulation um, of the ear when you're trying to visualize the tympanic membrane is different from an older child like one two or three years of age and this actually affects your ability to measure the tympanic temperature uh, with an infrared thermometer so um, um, it's not always reliable and i personally in children under the age of six months i would usually go for um for the underarm skin electronic probe rather than the actual tympanic membrane and the, the final thing I think we need to think about is when we haven't actually got a recorded uh, temperature, but there's parental perception of fever. And um, the NICE guidelines are quite clear that we, we need to take this um, as valid and we need to take it seriously when we're dealing with that. So if, if a parent says, my child's felt hot in febrile, we should we should rely that there probably has been some fever. I, I'm assuming there's no significant difference between a an electronic skin thermometer and a, and a tympanic thermometer. I ask because when there's kids that are a little bit febrile and grisly, using things like tympanic thermometers that they may have never seen before, I'm sure only adds to their distress. But I've sometimes used uh, either our electronic thermometer or, or their parents' thermometer, which has just gone under their arm, probably because that's something they're a little bit more familiar with. Yeah, um, it's it's appropriate. And as I said, the the absolute number is not an indicator by by itself to how severe the illness is. It's worth, you know, um, going back to the traffic light system. A red flag would always be a temperature in a child under the age of three months and a temperature of uh, 39 or above in a child under the age of six months. And these are in practical terms, uh, these are the only two occasions where the absolute number would be very important. I understand that with the um, pediatrics early warning score, there, there's emphasis on the numbers. But, you know, in practical terms, you could see a child with a temperature of 40 and being tachycardic as a response to the fever um, and scoring high on their early warning scores. But at the same time, when you're examining them, it's still a mild viral infection. So you wouldn't have to, to action it the way you would do in adult medicine, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's really useful words. Thank you. Shall we move on then from, from that section? Shall we uh, have a little chat about history? Because uh, I'm, I'm aware that history, particularly in, in younger children, is uh, something that they're not necessarily going to be able to tell us ourselves. So you know how how do we best go about getting the history and uh, how how much relevance uh, does the history have to the presentation 
So I think you're right. I think it depends on the age of the child. You know, some older children are going to be able to give us histories, you know, adolescents and even school age children are going to be able to give us some degree of history at various different developmental stages. So it's always worth doing. And then we've also obviously got the history from the parent, which is really important. I would say that probably examination takes a higher precedence in young children than it does in adults. We've talked before that history is the primary point of diagnosis in adults. And I'd say that the younger the child is, the more likely examination takes a bigger portion of that. But but the history is still really important. And, and we're going to get a lot of that from the parents and the young children. So it's a skill we we really need to develop. There's some general principles that we want to consider. Wadge has already mentioned them, which is the NICE guidelines for fever and under fives, the assessment and initial management. And this basically covers the traffic light system that, that he talked about. And that is effectively a series of features that go from green, amber and red, things that we want to elicit either in the history or the examination. And they're vital that we find them out because they indicate um, the difference between potentially a quite well, well, we're saying a mildly unwell child with a viral illness to some stuff that, that concerns us more. It's basically the most important aspect of, of, of taking a child's hist- history in the context of a febrile infection is eliciting all the signs and symptoms in the traffic light system. Um, that's the first point of, um, of assessment. And this really is quite important. Add to that um, the development of any associating symptoms. And there's a very good example of this when you have a child who has been chorizal for a while or had a cough or a runny nose uh, or a sore throat associated with the temperature. It's a lot easier to reach a diagnosis this way than when you're presented with a child who has a temperature with no source of infection on initial assessment. So that would be more concerning to you as a medical practitioner, especially when you're doing your initial assessment, than it would have been if there are other associating symptoms. So is it fair to say, Waj, that we should probably, although we don't have to, it's always worth looking for the source of the fever and trying to find the associated symptoms that go along with that fever. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, 100%. Paramedics, from my experience with with my students, have a, a tendency to go in and take a history at the same time they're doing examination or doing ops, because obviously we, we quite commonly work in twos, um, and usually one person jumps straight onto two adults and t- does ops, and the same with children. I, from my experience, would say that actually it's better if the child doesn't look immediately sick and they don't need immediate resuscitation, it's probably better just to hang back a little bit and start to speak to the parents and, you know, wave and maybe engage a little bit from a distance with the child just to start to build a little bit of rapport and trust. I think it's it's very difficult to gain the trust of some children especially when you're a stranger in the house you'll get a better sort of consultation if you can build rapport by not immediately jumping on the child to examine them 100 percent. if the um, situation that you're walking in which is already emotionally charged you've got worried parents and a sick child gaining that type of you know trust and um, initial relationship initial report with the child um, and with their carers is incredibly helpful it saves a lot of the um, the distress 
that comes with the situation. It's incredibly efficient to have two members of staff doing the assessment together. As you mentioned, we don't generally tend to have that type of approach when it comes to assessing children in an emergency department or in the uh, pediatrics assessment unit, mainly because most of the Initial assessments are done by the responsible nurse and then the doctor walks in. Whereas, as you put it, if you've got two practitioners walking in at the same time, one can survey the patient and the other one um, uh, could communicate with the parents. Uh, and that type of approach is is a lot warmer and, and more reassuring to everyone. So, yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think as well for the slightly older children, and as, as children develop, it will change. We we need to use language and behaviours that they understand. And a good way to learn this is just by asking the parents. So in an adult, we might say, you know, have you had any stomach pain or abdominal pain? That that doesn't necessarily mean anything to a child. Have you got a headache? Doesn't necessarily mean anything to a child. They might say yes when they actually have abdominal pain. So I think we need to use language that the child understands. So and that, and that can be guided by the parents. So does anything hurt or can you point to where it hurts? To using anatomy that the parents would use to, so or terms that the parents would use to describe certain areas of, of their body. So does your, you know, it might be tummy for the whole abdomen. Does your tummy hurt? So using the stuff that's age appropriate and that they understand will, will help you get more accurate information. And I think that brings us on to the um, to to how to form our histories, and that that's not that much different than sort of taking a history from an adult. You know, we want to establish a chronological order of the symptoms when they first started. Does the the cough start first, or did the fever start first? How long have they had the fever for? Duration over five days is is a little bit a concerning feature, which we'll talk about later. Have you got a objectively measured temperature or um, is it a parental report of fever or the absence of fever when taking a history has the fever been constant or has it been up and down is there response to antipyretics have antipyretics been used how is the child in themselves when they have the fever or after they've had antipyretics one thing i've noticed working um, alongside yourself wadge on my pediatrics placement is a child can be really grouchy clingy and look semi unwell but actually after some antipyretics they're run then running up and down the ward and they're a completely different child and i think that's um actually quite good for our assessment i I don't know how you feel about that the amount of concern that tends to happen with children when they have a high temperature is is completely justifiable not just from the parents but from everybody who comes in in contact with the child at the beginning and it's not particularly uncommon for us to basically give the child some antibiotic medication and observe how they respond to it and what they're like when their temperature settles down. And I'm speaking from personal experience. My own son did that to me. I walked home after a long shift and he had a temperature of of 39 and he looked miserable and I I got incredibly worried that he might be actually septic. So I took him to A&E and uh, one of my colleagues basically assessed him um, gave him some neurofen and paracetamol. Um, his temperature settled down, and he, you know, went back to his uh, to his normal self. Um, and he made me look like a complete idiot. But the idea is, I think the most important thing here is um, to appreciate how concerning a child might look when they have a high temperature. It doesn't matter if you've got medical background or not. Every concern has to be taken seriously. At the same time, when you're trying to manage the patient in an acute medical setting it's not uncommon 
at all for us to give them some antipyretics, wait for the temperature to settle down, reassess the child. And if they're back to their normal selves, um, there's nothing particularly to worry about at that stage. It's uh, it's good to know, Waj, that uh, even consultant paediatricians can suffer from uh, a bit of parental anxiety around uh, feverish children, because I think uh, anyone anyone with kids has been there. And I, th- I think another aspect to mention when when looking at history is to uh, is not to forget past medical history, uh, which is which is really important. You know how 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 the child was uh, was born, whether there's any complications at birth, if there was any admissions into into NICU or SCABU, if if the child was born at, at term or premature, and and all those those type of factors, and whether there's any other risk factors such as immunocompromise. Also, not to not to forget drug history and. Um, Family history as well, whether whether there's uh, siblings or parents have had febrile seizures and any any genetic components. Yeah, um, that is a very valid point. There are children who have complex background medical history. You're talking about cerebral palsy, certain syndromes where the body temperature is usually quite low. So a temperature on assessment that measures 36.5 or 37, you know, the absolute number might look normal, but for that specific child, that might constitute fever. And so it's quite important uh, to take into consideration the medical background of the patient being assessed and what background conditions are they suffering with. And it's uh, it, it all boils down to this the, 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 the original point, parental concerns the best person to ask is the um, is the parent or the carer of the patient because they have a, a frame of reference, if you like, to compare to. And they would usually tell you if this actual number is abnormal for their child, whilst it may not look abnormal as an absolute number for us. Yeah, I was uh, I was quite shocked when I um, was working with, with you guys, Waj, that... Um, there were children with congenital, some congenital heart diseases where saturations of like 82% were the norm and that was acceptable. And actually, if they were higher than that, you were more concerned than if they were, that was their normal levels. And that really threw, threw me. So um, I think that's a great point. Yeah, as, a, uh, as you mentioned, Simon, it's incredibly important to ask the parents about the background of the child and what constitutes normal and abnormal for them. And it's interesting that you bring up the uh, uh, cardiology cases because in certain conditions, having high saturations can actually have an adverse effect on the child. Always, once you've surveyed the the, the patient in the uh, uh, acute setting and made sure that the child doesn't require resuscitation, it's always worth talking to the parents get a bit of the medical background and ask specifically when it comes to children who have complex medical backgrounds, what constitutes normal and what constitutes abnormal for them. So I, I wonder I wonder whether or not it's worth a, a, a very small summary of that topic because it was a lot of information, wasn't it? So so I guess some it's difficult to put that down to a few points, but I guess some key takeaway points is that don't rush in to start putting things on the child if they're not very time critical in front of you you've got time you've got time to ask some questions take a detailed history about the event and timelines that have led up to what's going on today 
a lot of our questions are going to be focused around identifying the presence or absence of the green, amber and red flags that we've touched on and we'll talk about in a bit more detail in a second and then make sure that we're taking a good past medical history and and taking note of all of those important things like whether their pregnancy was normal and whether or not they've had any in-hospital stays as a result of potential genetic or or familial conditions. So that's the history. Let's talk a little bit about examination, Simon. So with the examination, before we get on to what we actually need to examine, there's a few principles that we need to consider. So the most important thing about paediatrics in comparison to adults is with adults, we tend to have a structure. We think about our systems exams or our A2E assessment, which if we're resuscitating a child, we're going to need A2E. But for those more just mildly unwell children, we need to be much more opportunistic. So we may have to do certain things at certain times when we get the opportunity. For example, if a child's asleep, it's a better time to listen to their chest than when they're screaming their head off because you've upset them and gone near them. If you need to have a urine sample for for looking at the fever, you might have to ask a parent to sit around for a while and catch a clean specimen and get that just when you can. You may need to adapt and move things to later in your examination that cause distress so for example blood sugars and looking in the back of throats I've not yet looked into the back of a child's throat who a young child so so an infant who hasn't cried when I've put a tongue depressor in the back of their throat and they they gag on those they don't like it so it's one thing to leave it to the end so just think about the order and, and just just do stuff as and when you can as long as you cover it all eventually it's 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 better to be opportunistic. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, Simon. Many people develop their own systems of examining children when they're um, as they go along in pediatrics medicine. But the way that you've described it is exactly the way I would do my own assessments. The moment you walk in, you want to start with the um, elements of examination that would be. L- least distressing to the child, specifically when it comes to listening to their heart and their chest or feeling their abdomen. All of these elements would be easier to do if the child is not distressed. And certainly my system of examining and assessing a child in an acute setting starts with obviously taking history. But if the child is settled enough, I would move on to my examination at the same time as I'm talking to the parents and getting the history. And when it comes to the more distressing parts of the examination, specifically when it comes to looking in the ears and the throat, it's it's always worth leaving these until the end and making sure that all the other elements that requires a settled and quiet child are done as and when you can. We all know that one of the things that they seem to hate the most are the adhesive oxygen saturation uh, stickers that, that we always, they're always keen to put on them. I've found in my practice, and it's not infallible, it doesn't work for every child, but certainly younger children, once you have got the sticker on their foot rather than their finger, I've, I've never had success putting it on a, putting it on a pediatric uh, hand, but pop it, on a, pop it on a toe and then put their socks on over the top. And with sufficient distraction, they often will forget that it's on. 
That is an absolutely amazing tip. And I've seen uh, the pediatric nurses do that all the time, Alex. It works really, really well. Distraction is is everything. You know, we could use as, as well as that as a great technique. They forget about the SATS probe. We could try blowing up gloves and then tying knots in them, which I know lots of paramedics do. I've never been able to do that myself. I, I'm quite envious of people that can. Bubbles are really good, probably before the pandemic, because obviously we've got masks on now. Toys that you can use to, to distract the child examining the parent or examining a teddy bear to show them that it doesn't doesn't hurt them using mobile phones tablets tvs with games and tv programs that they watch is really good and if you're josh probably the biggest distraction technique you got is landing a helicopter in their back garden oh, i don't know i think uh, i think a bit of pepper pig or uh, or similar might uh, might work wonders for, for for josh i mean not for the uh, not for the children <laughs> Actually, I've got another uh, another little uh, thing to, to just bring up quickly while we're talking about distraction. We're going back a long a long time now, back to the uh, the time of the dinosaurs when I uh, did my pediatric placement uh, at university. And one thing that I saw, which I was fascinated and absolutely blown away by, was the use of sugar drops when cannulating a uh, a very young baby and the effect that the sugar and those those drops had in terms of calming the child it was it was like magic those those drops are absolutely incredible i lit i used one two days ago and a child that i was cannulating quickly because it was quite unwell was just screaming and screaming and the nurse walked in and went try this and just put it in his mouth instant stop it was absolutely incredible so yeah it's a shame the ambulance service or, or the ambulance service i know don't carry those but it, it might be worth um if anyone wants a service improvement project looking at getting them in because they are so good absolutely I, I this is one of those things that when i first started in pediatrics medicine just blew me away i have no idea how they work though and i don't know if there's um evidence behind it but it works wonders with babies and it makes it a lot easier to cannulate them and do procedures once you've used them but as i said i don't know what the mechanisms of it are and whether there's evidence behind it it's it's unclear to me so we've said that we might need to be opportunistic and perform elements of our examination in a slightly disjointed fashion based on on how the child's acting. But let's just go through some of the main systems examination points that uh, we're going to be wanting to look at. And I think people will be most familiar with the three-minute toolkit. That's definitely something that I've found has been my best paediatrics training so far. And I'm, I'm sure you will agree is quite a good format for practitioners to, to do and to, and to follow. So, Simon, do you want to start off by talking about how we might start our three-minute toolkit? Yeah, so the three-minute toolkit is something that any, any paramedic can find online. It's a really good course called Spotting the Sick Child. It's free. You can just sign up with an email address, and then you can basically complete a video-based course, which not only teaches you the three-minute toolkit, which is a way to assess pediatrics, and also covers all of the red and amber flags we want to look for in the NICE guidelines. It also covers some symptom-based approaches and videos showing you a difference between sick and well children and symptoms to look out for things like subcostal recession head bobbing grunting various things like that that if you haven't seen them before if you're a student paramedic and you know maybe haven't seen a lot of pediatric patients it's something that you can see and visualize and i think that's a really good way of learning so i'd highly recommend that to anyone that follows uh, an, an a to d approach and then on top of that 
you add in a tummy assessment, a temperature, an ENT, and obviously a DEFG, so don't ever forget glucose, in sick children. So those are the main components of it. If you want to, obviously you can do a little bit more of a comprehensive assessment and use systems exams. So things that I would be looking for in children generally would be in a general exam feeding lymph nodes assessing hydration status and perfusion in a respiratory exam we'd want to look for increased work of breathing in respiratory distress we'd want to auscultate the chest being aware that in smaller chests upper airway noises can be transmitted down to make them sound like lower airway noises so we just need to be aware of that we want oxygen saturations and respiratory rate having some awareness that tachypnea is the first sign of a child who's unwell and should never be ignored but also remembering it can be increased with fever so as Wad said earlier using antipyretics to maybe see if that tachypnea is persistent or if it's just fever related is a really good focus just going back to what you were saying about don't ever forget the glucose. Now, as you'll obviously be aware, one thing that we talk about quite a lot uh, in terms of adult patients is ensuring that we only do relevant investigations, particularly if they are more invasive ones. Are we saying, uh, or I think you're saying there that glucose should be done on most, if not all children? I, I would say no. I would say it still needs to be the same as adults. It needs to be a applied it's a test and it needs to be applied if it's clinically appropriate that being said i do appreciate that some ambulance services in the country have mandatory observations and blood glucose might be part of that so i think if it's a policy within your organization then to omit that maybe could put you at risk as a practitioner because that's what your trust wants i don't necessarily agree with that i do think it, it it's a test and it needs to be applied so from from a, a textbook answer and, and a gold standard answer, I would say that it's a test and it should be applied when it's a clinically appropriate. Therefore, not all children need one. Um, I don't know if Waj wants to, to comment on that. I was actually going to jump in with the uh, chest assessment. So I'll start with that and then I'll move on to the uh, glucose bit. One of the things that, that are worth considering when you're assessing the chest in children of various age groups is pro the prolonged expiratory phase. Sometimes you can listen to the ch to the child's chest. Uh, they may not have when you when you look at the number of breaths per, uh, uh, per minute. Uh, they may not be significantly tachypneic. Um, you may not be able to hear a wheeze. You may or may not hear some transmitted sounds. But assessing the expiratory phase and whether or not it's prolonged could be a very useful indicator to using bronchodilators, for example. So that's one thing that would be incredibly useful when you're assessing a child from a chest point of view. The second point that comes to the uh, uh, to measuring glucose, I absolutely agree with Simon. It's a test and you have to apply it where it's clinically significant. A child who has a seizure, definitely they need their blood sugars measured in the context of diabetes, altered levels of consciousness, to name a few. But even when it comes to um, uh, to local policy, not specifically in this area, uh, but in other areas in the country, measuring the blood sugars in a patient who doesn't actually need it measuring can actually complicate the situation. And one very simple example of this, children who present with croup, Say, for example, if you've been called to a three-year-old, and typically these types of uh, presentations happen in the early hours of the morning. Child wakes up, barking, cough, stridor, and significant work of breathing. The key aspect of management at that point is, A, if the child is still breathing, 
don't disturb them. And the most important aspect of not disturbing them is not doing their blood sugars. If you're going to prick their skin with a needle and they're already distressed, you may actually make the situation worse. They may cry themselves into a crisis. So it is very important to assess the situation from a clinical point of view. If measuring the child's glucose is going to be clinically significant, then by all means, go ahead and do it. But if it's not going to be clinically significant, I wouldn't because it's just going to distress the child even more. These are the th- the type of, the types of things that you would pick up as you progress through your career because it's it's very difficult for uh, for a junior member of staff say for example if someone is is just starting they, they won't be able to make that type of call as confidently as you would if you've been in this business for a while and if you've been experienced enough to know when to do it and when not to do it one of the things that people might be a bit less familiar with is a routine ENT exam in, in kids. Waj, would you maybe be able to just talk a little bit about some of the things we might be looking for in our ENT exam and some of the significances of what we might find? Any abnormality that you can detect in these areas uh, would be incredibly significant. And this starts from simply noticing erythema like redness in the tympanic membranes or in the throat can be a pointer towards a viral upper respiratory tract infection. On the other hand, if you notice localized erythema and specific tenderness around areas related to the tonsils or to the ears, that would be even you know, more relevant. A simple example of this would be children who have discharge coming from one ear, the kind of discharge that you would see in otitis media, for example. So I would usually start off by, as I said, it's important to survey the area, have a feel of the child. And when you're jumping in after collecting all the information that you wanted and assessed the child's chest and abdomen, and you're moving on to examining the neck and the ears and the throat, you start by the least invasive thing you can you can do, which I usually do, have a feel of the neck look at the ears from the outside, look at the skin around it, make sure that you're not noticing any localized signs, and then you move on to um, to examining the, the tympanic membranes. And you have also to bear in mind that the anatomy of that area changes dramatically from the age of six months all the way up to, um, to five, six years of age. And if, if, if you're keen on, 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 on fully visualizing the tympanic, then one hand should be holding the otoscope. The other one should be grabbing hold of the, of the ear and trying to manipulate it. You start by pulling it backwards a bit. If that doesn't work, then you pull it upwards and backwards until you actually manage to visualize the full tympanic. And that's when you can see erythema or discharge these are the most common things that you see. But in some cases, uh, very commonly, there could be a lot of earwax that would obstruct your vision, so you won't be able to comment on it. Obviously, in traditional paramedic training, otoscopy wasn't something that was originally taught. However, I think now with more and more university BSCs developing patient assessment modules within their uh, 
within their training more and more students that I know are actually learning these skills I do think it's about time that ambulance services began to roll out otoscopy because I do think that we we need an otoscope on an ambulance it's a relatively simple skill to learn it just needs a little bit of practice you can practice on your colleagues at uni it can be an expensive bit of kit to buy but you can also buy sort of lower cost versions if you want your own that um are actually pretty good just for visualizing gross pathology so it's probably worth you know considering getting yourself one if you if you want to start doing otoscopy and your service doesn't provide them but i think as we see more and more paramedics coming out with these skills i think that will hopefully change so that we will have the kit on board on board vehicles one of the most important things to do when examining a child is to examine them down to skin level. And this is for several reasons. One, to do an assessment for any if there's any concerns of non-accidental injury, but also to see if there's any rashes. Rashes are really complicated, and I know that that strikes fear in a lot of paramedics and a lot of primary care practitioners and a lot of emergency practitioners. So, Waj, do you want to talk a little bit about rashes and maybe uh, how they relate to fever? Definitely, yes. This is one of the most common areas of concerns for everyone, as you mentioned. And I think from a pre-hospital medicine point of view and as an acute assessment, one of the most important aspects of assessing rash in uh, in the acute medical um, setting is recognizing the serious types of skin rashes that you have to act upon immediately and the ones that you don't really need to act upon immediately but you would like to get a second opinion or a more experienced pair of eyes to assess. And I think the one thing that keeps being mentioned over and over again is blanching versus non-blanching rash. And that is to say, you know, when you do the uh, the, the glass test, it, um, if you press on the skin rash, if it disappears, then it's likely to be benign. And if it doesn't disappear then you have to start thinking about more serious causes of it, the most obvious of which is meningococcal disease or what people refer to as meningitis. It's really quite simple. Once you've assessed the child and you've recognized that there's abnormal rash developing, then doing the glass test and pressing on it would tell you if it's blanching, then it's most likely related to the fever itself, because that could cause some degree of erythema, generalized erythema in the skin. But also it, can, it could be related to allergies, articular rash, or, or just being caused by the viral infection itself. If you do the, skin, the, the glass test and the, the rash does not disappear, it usually means that there's a hemorrhagic cause to it. And that's where meningococcal disease becomes relevant because one of the things that happen in the context of meningococcal disease is deranged clotting functions and this is what causes your non-blanching rash. But there are also other reasons for it and one of the things that tend to worry people a lot but could be quite benign is non-blanching spots in the uh, superior vena cava uh, distribution that's above the nipples line. And this can be quite common in children who can be febrile, but also have a vomiting illness and a coughing illness. Because if the cough or the vomit is forceful enough, it could cause some degree of petechial spread in the skin above the nipple line. So from 
our point of view as practitioners in pediatrics medicine, when we see a child, whether or not it's fever, a forceful coughing illness or a forceful vomiting illness, and we've inspected them fully, obviously, and we've established that these particular spots are only limited to the superior vena cava distribution, then we don't tend to worry about this too much. But there's also the point of associated temperature. Uh, And if there's temperature with non-blanching spots, it's always worth observing the child in an acute medical setting just to make sure that these spots are not spreading. Because if they start spreading, that becomes clinically significant. So from a pre-hospital paramedic perspective, then do you think, Waj, it's fair to say that if a child has a non-blanching rash and a fever, that there is absolutely no issue at all with that child being transported to hospital because they're likely going to have some degree of monitoring and definitely needs a senior review from someone who who is really experienced with this type of area of practice? 100%. Yes, absolutely. Any type of temperature in a child with a non-blanching rash has to come to hospital to be assessed by a senior pediatrician. You cannot make this call by yourself in the community. And this applies not just to paramedics and pre-hospital medicine. It applies to general practitioners and to, to, to any medical practitioner in a primary care setting. The, the things that I'm mentioning are things that are incredibly relevant to the pediatrics medical specialty. So you have to be experienced enough to know what you're looking for specifically when it comes to these points. I think that's really reassuring to hear, Waj, because... You know, some people think of things like Henlock, Schloin, Purpura and think, oh, I actually need to differentiate this. And I don't think we do. I don't even think from an emergency department perspective that we need to. We can obviously query these sorts of things, but I think that actually it needs a senior pediatric opinion. And I think that no no pediatrician's ever going to be cross of us for referring a child with a non-blanching rash and a fever. So I think we can be reassured that actually we don't necessarily need to diagnose these rashes. We just need to identify that they're there and uh, appropriately transport them and get them to the right place. I don't think it's reasonable to expect pre-hospital medicine to be in a position to differentiate between vasculitis rash, ITP rash, and meningococcal disease rash. That's not That, that cannot happen uh, in a pre-hospital setting. It has to happen in, a, in an acute medical setting with a senior pediatrician assessing the patient if for example if we need further investigations we have to do them i've worked in many places where fever plus non-blanching spots equals treatment as meningococcal disease until proven otherwise and it doesn't matter which um uh, which distribution the, the the spots follow so you know it is incredibly important to to, to make sure that when scenarios like this are presented in pre-hospital medicine that um, the appropriate course of action is taken and in that particular case admit to the hospital and get a senior pediatrician to have a look at it. So going on slightly further than that obviously paramedics do carry IV antibiotics benzoyl penicillin mainly for meningitis and meningococcal disease. I think it's fair to say that if you have a semi-unwell child with a fever and a non-blanching rash that administration of those antibiotics pre-hospitally can be can make a difference and that I, I think we should be 
supporting staff that do that. So even if it turns out not to be meningitis, the, I think what you've just said is really important that we query that it could be meningococcal until proven otherwise so that we, we should probably treat that. Would you agree with that? Again, it's once you've got suspicion that this case could be a meningococcal disease case, that um, IM ben, benzal penicillin injection could save the child's life. When examining the cardiovascular system, we want to look at the patient's colour. Are they pale? Uh, are they cyanosed? We want to do a touch temperature of the peripheries. We discussed earlier that cold children is, is a worrying sign. We don't want children with cold peripheries. We also don't want children with mottling peripheries. We need to do a central capillary refill time, which we want to be under two seconds. Anything sort of over that, we need to be considering, is there some sort of dehydration or is the child shocked? We might want to palpate pulses, so brachial and femoral in younger children and babies and radials in older children. And we could do a blood pressure if it's relevant, although we need to accept that it's a late sign of shock in children. And once it's lowered, will likely mean that the child is already beginning to decompensate. The final thing we do in the cardiovascular exam is to listen for heart sounds. And this is actually quite complicated in children because some heart murmurs can be normal. But I think the most important thing from a pre-hospital and emergency perspective is the fact that we just identify that a murmur is there and refer it on to someone who maybe can differentiate this a little bit more and has more skills and can arrange things like echo. Absolutely. I think the, the point that you're referring to is floor murmur. And this is something that's quite common in children who have a high temperature. And what we tend to do in these sort of situations is that once the temperature had settled down and the heart rate had settled down as well, we listen to the chest again. And most of the time that these types of floor murmurs have disappeared completely. So yeah, I would, I would totally agree with that. Finally, the abdominal examination. So we really need to examine children's abdomens. So this is pretty similar to adults. We're probably going to uh, listen for the presence of bowel sounds and then we're going to palpate the quadrants or on babies we might squeeze the abdomen just to see if there's any tenderness, guarding or rigidity and obviously look for specific symptoms. I think it's important to remember, and this goes throughout the entire examination and entire history, that younger children don't necessarily present with classic symptoms. So if we take meningitis, for an example, a uh, a baby or an infant isn't going to complain of a, a headache and neck stiffness. They're just going to be irritable and um, unconsolable and maybe drowsy or floppy and may obviously have have a rash. So I think it's important that we look at how age range affects the symptoms and examination findings that we're going to come on to. So yeah, just finish off with a, with an abdominal exam. Part of that, obviously, abdominal exam, if we haven't found another source for infection, should probably be getting uh, a urine dip. I think that the point you mentioned about the non-specificity of symptoms in, in, in younger children and in neonates, for example, is very important because the way the child handles on examination can tell you a lot more than when you're examining their abdomen or their chest or, or any other aspect of the medical examination that you might be able to, to do in, in the initial assessment period. And I must stress the point of if you're out in pre-hospital medicine assessing a child who's four, five, six weeks of age, and you're not particularly happy with the way they're behaving, if they're not handling well, this is the term that we use in pediatrics medicine, if you can send for any reason, with or without temperature, 
please bring the child over to hospital so that they can be assessed by a pediatrician. I, I, I cannot stress this enough. A child, a baby that doesn't handle well an examination, or if the, um, the parents put it in a way that the baby isn't himself or herself and not feeding well, and you've gone out and assessed the child and you're not particularly sure and you can't see a specific sign or symptom on examination that you can put your finger on, always come to hospital and always ask for a pediatrics opinion. So the the answer to this is is probably realistically, well, it depends on the situation, but in, in general terms, when you say these these fevers of currently an unknown origin that need to be differentiated and they're a little bit grisly and, and unsettled, need to go to A&E. Do you think they always need to come with us or is that something that we can say, okay, they need to be worked up to get to the bottom of what's going on, but they don't look acutely, acutely unwell. There's no red flags in front of me here. Therefore, you can present yourself to to A&E to be seen there rather than, as, as we know what the situation is these days, come and sit in my ambulance for six hours in or longer in the queue to just get you in the door. So thank you, Josh, for, for bringing, bringing this up. Um, when you're trying to decide what the safest mode of transfer for a patient is, it's important to take into consideration what your initial diagnosis is and how you predict the clinical scenario to develop. And I'm afraid there's no right or wrong answer in there. It really does depend on the, the experience of the person who's making the assessment. And it's, it's very important to recognize that when you're trying to diagnose any case, whether it's pediatrics or adults or whatever it is, that the skill that we usually use is pattern recognition. And pattern recognition develops with more exposure to cases as you move along in your career. So from the point of view of a junior practitioner, when they're um, assessing a febrile child, uh, their impression and confidence about their own diagnosis can be very different to an experienced practitioner. So I would always say, pick the safest mode of transfer that you can think of. Don't look at the numbers specifically. Look at the numbers and look at the child and think to yourself, what is the most likely diagnosis in this case? That would help you then decide on what the best mode of transfer is. Would it be an ambulance or would it be the parents bringing the child uh, themselves? All of these decisions are based on your initial impression as a, as, a, as a medical practitioner. You look at the situation, assess the patient, formulate a list of potential diagnoses in your head, and that would help you then decide what the next step should be. Does that answer the question? I think it does, and I think it answers it really well. And I think it actually leads us quite nicely into looking a little bit closer at the nice traffic light system and using that and the stuff that we've established from the history and examination to support conveyance versus non-conveyance decision-making. So this can be a little bit tricky pre-hospital. Um, a lot of trusts do have mandatory conveyance policies for children under a certain age group. I've been quite vocal on social media that I don't agree with mandatory conveyance policies because I I, I don't think that mandatory is good for 
anything. I think it detracts from the training and education needs that actually are the real issue here that we should identify, that we should improve education around paediatrics as opposed to just making snap decision rules of take everything to hospital basically to cover for error when actually we should be just improving standards. I certainly came across a few policies like that. In the East Midlands, for example, there was a specific policy about bringing every child under the age of two, regardless of what the the assessment shows. If an ambulance crew is being called out to a child under the age of two years, they have to be brought to hospital, regardless of what the uh, situation is like. And I do agree with you, Simon. When you put policies this way, you're preventing the practitioner from basically learning how to recognize signs and symptoms of acute illnesses, serious illnesses, minor illnesses. It puts pressure on the service, it puts pressure on on hospitals, and it also, most importantly, doesn't help the practitioner develop. The most important thing when it comes to issues like this is to train your staff and make sure that they're building enough experience to be able to conduct an initial assessment and formulate a, a list of differential diagnoses and then formulate a management plan. And that leads us on nicely to um, actually making that conveyance decision. And I think here, this is where a lot of paramedics, I, I know that I felt this way when I was more junior in my career, get quite worried about discharging these children. We need to find a way that we can appropriately differentiate between those that are safe to non-convey and those that need conveyance to hospital. And I rely upon this with my discharges in hospital by using the NICE guideline traffic light system. So in my opinion, and I think this is supported by NICE as well, and hopefully Wadge will agree, if the child is completely in the green and has no features of amber or red flag symptoms as per the, the traffic lights, they're probably pretty safe to discharge. So we can discharge them at home, give some worsening advice and some advice about managing the condition if we've identified that there's an actual cause of the fever to the parents and then obviously instruct them on how to recontact the, the service. We've done quite a lot about safety netting in our safety netting podcast, so we don't need to go over that again. You can go and listen to that podcast for for how to do that i think if there's amber flags if you've just got one or two then maybe we need to consider discharge at scene but we might need some shared decision making to make that so i think it's really important at this point that we access pediatric services so Waj, as a consultant or obviously in your previous role when you were a registrar and obviously you can speak for your registrar colleagues as well up and down the country so no pressure would you have issue with paramedics and pre-hospital staff calling you to discuss patients for they feel uh, could be non-conveyed not to make the decision for them but feel that could be non-conveyed but just need a little bit of support in maybe making that decision i would welcome that i cannot tell you how many times i've been very happy to to hear from a uh, from a paramedic out in the community assessing a child and wanting some advice if if i personally deem the situation too complex for the uh, for the person conducting the assessment then i would be more than happy to arrange for the child for the child to come to hospital and uh, and get seen by myself but yes 100 percent. if you're not sure talk to us and we would be more than happy to go through the, the history again and the examination findings and we can build an, a clinical impression together and formulate a plan moving forward 
And I think this uh, might be one of my soapboxes that Alex and Josh will need to get me off quickly. But I think it's really important that we emphasize this point. Paramedics can absolutely phone and seek guidance from in-hospital specialities. The whole notion that you're not allowed to speak to or not allowed to refer or not allowed to seek advice from phoning direct people in hospital it needs to go out the window. It's outdated. It's it's old school, and and it needs to be gone. That's that's all I'm going to say on the matter. Because right, it's it's quite useful that I can mute his microphone and stop him talking, isn't it? Because he probably would have been there for quite a while, even though he sounded like he was. But I can unmute it. Stopping. <laughs> <laughs> but this is this is a very important point. I I I welcome paramedics ringing us and asking us questions. This is how you grow as a practitioner. You know, part of the reason why we're having so much pressure on the services is that we're not helping our practitioners in pre-hospital medicine. We're not allowing them to to, to assess patients and formulate a, a, a diagnosis and make a management plan. It's incredibly important for them. If you are out in the community and you're assessing a, a patient, whatever specialty it is, there's no harm in contacting the specialty team in hospital and discussing the case with them because you could save a lot of time and a lot of resources by doing that. That's really refreshing to hear, Waj, and I know a lot of people listening will be really grateful hearing uh, our in-hospital colleagues taking that that approach and being that willing to offer support and, and help share decision-making with us, particularly around these very tricky topics. So that's for uh, our amber flag features. The other thing we can do with our amber flags is if it's specific things like uh, a tachycardia, we all know that temperature can induce uh, an inappropriate tachycardia in a child. And um, I think one thing we can do is give the child some antipyretics, maybe a bit of a fluid challenge, and then maybe sit there for 30 or 40 minutes doing our paperwork and then re-examine the child and do a repeat set of observations. And if those symptoms have resolved and maybe the temperature is a little bit lower, the aim isn't to lower the temperature, but the, the aim is to see an improvement in the child. They're now running around playing with toys much happier and their tachycardia is resolved. That's reassuring. And then we then slide from having an amber flag patient into a nice green flag patient so we can we can then discharge. The final thing is the red flag patient. So if we've got lots of amber flags or we've got red flag symptoms, then these patients absolutely need conveyance to hospital to, to be seen and worked up and maybe have more tests. Very quickly, Waj, we've we've got uh, a safety netting podcast which is which is fairly prescriptive with how we would safety net a patient and, and how we would would be going about doing that but just in your experience is there any any particular sort of pearls that you would cascade to paramedics when it comes to safety netting kids and, and safety netting pediatrics with fever the most important thing is managing the expectations of the parents and and also being open and cover all the possibilities and when i say that it's very important to, to emphasize to the parents that the clinical picture in pediatrics medicine can change very quickly. And I think Simon can, uh, can agree with that as well. The decision you're making at the time of assessment is dependent on the clinical picture that you're seeing right now in front of you. If the situation changes, then I would always encourage the parents to come back and seek further medical assessments. The main reason for this is because, as I said, in pediatrics medicine, the clinical picture can change very quickly.
So what you're seeing in front of you, and the way I would phrase it to the parents is, I can only comment on what I'm seeing right now. And the child that I'm examining right now seems to have a mild viral infection or any other diagnosis that you might have reached based on your assessment. However, if you see something that you're not sure about, or if there's anything different about your child from the way they've presented today, then the safest thing to do is to come to hospital and ask us to, see, to reassess the situation and make sure that nothing more serious has developed. I think that's really uh, reassuring to paramedics, Waj, because I think a lot of people feel that they need to concretely know that that child won't get worse. And actually, we, we can never say that. Medicine doesn't work that way. And we, you know, we can only treat what we're seeing at that point. And I think if we, if we, as long as we tell the parents that and we're honest that, that we, we think things will, will get better, but there's obviously always the chance that things could get worse and we're only seeing what we're seeing now they will be reassured and, and comfortable with the decision. And then if the child does get worse, they they won't be so negative in, in response to that. They will be they will do what we've asked them and they'll seek further help. Finally, with safety netting, there's some amazing resources which we'll put in the article where you can actually get printed red flag, amber flag and green flag advice leaflets. We mentioned them in the uh, safety net and podcast, but we'll, we'll put the specific ones for pediatric fever into the uh, into the, the show notes and the article so you can uh, access that, which you can print off and obviously give to parents yourself as you see patients because they're really useful. Let's fire off a, a couple of quick fire questions then for, for general fever now. I'll give this one to you, Simon. Can you explain the difference between a fever without focus and a pyrexia of unknown origin because they're sometimes used interchangeably and it appears that they're not the same thing a fever without focus is basically a child we're seeing with a with a infectious or likely infectious fever probably something viral but we just don't have an obvious cause for it at that point so there's a few things we need to do like urine dip to exclude a urine infection but if the child's well we can say that there's probably a viral infection and still discharge them even without a direct focus whereas a pyrexia of unknown origin is something much more sinister and it's a prolonged fever i think more than 10 or 14 days where there's something more sinister going on but wad you could probably answer that much better than i can i think i think you've covered it pretty well but um my understanding is of, of pyrexia of unknown origin that specific condition is any ongoing fever above 38 for more than five days or in some textbooks is seven days without a definitive source of infection and um, i think we've mentioned kawasaki at some point during the podcast as one of those examples where pyrexia of unknown origin becomes very relevant and can be quite serious it's worth mentioning that temperature can develop as a first sign of a viral infection and the other associating symptoms can follow within the next 12 to 24 hours. So it's not particularly uncommon for us to see a child with a temperature initially without a clear focus, and then you assess the child 12 to 24 hours later, and they start developing you know, red tympanics and red throat and um, other signs and symptoms of a viral infection. That would be a fever without a definitive focus, and that's different from pyrexia of unknown origin. 
that's really good to know. I've, um, I've, I've learned something there that actually it's a lot, lot shorter. Um, so we obviously mentioned Kawasaki's disease. Do you just want to briefly mention the, the other symptoms that go along with that that we should be looking out for with Kawasaki's? So there are other signs that come with Kawasaki's disease, polymorphic skin rash, uh, strawberry tongue, somatitis, cervical lymphadenopathy, bilateral conjunctivitis, and obviously the um, scaling of the tips of the fingers. Although in my experience, um, I've hardly ever come across a Kawasaki case with the scaling of the fingers. Usually these patients present with an ongoing fever for longer than five days. As I said, um, in other places, it's seven days without a clear focus. And they tend to have the skin rash, the conjunctivitis, uh, the cervical lymphadenopathy. Most of the Kawasaki diagnoses that have started to happen more recently would rely on two of these signs plus the uh, the ongoing fever, the pyrexia of unknown origin going on. And at that point, this is definitely for pediatrics assessments. This This next one sort of ties in with that. Is it appropriate for us to ever discharge a, a child who has a fever without identifying a source for infection, bearing in mind what you were saying about sometimes symptoms taking a few days to to present themselves. If we've got a patient that has all green flags on our nice traffic-like system, but we're not sure where that source of infection is, is it appropriate for us to watch and wait or should they be coming in for a more detailed workup? It really does depend on the experience of the person who's doing the assessment in the community. It depends on how the child presents. If the child presents with a, uh, with a fever that's 12 hours old and there aren't any other signs or symptoms that you can pinpoint and you're, you've examined the child's ears and throat and you, and you can't see a clear focus of infection, it, it, it can be quite tricky, even for the most experienced of, uh, uh, of, of pediatrics practitioners. My personal way to approach this is um, talk to us, pick up the phone and speak with the on-call pediatrics registrar, discuss the case. And if we are reasonably happy that the child can be managed in the community, then that's fine. If we're not happy, if there's any reason to be concerned, then it's always worth bringing the child over and having a look at them. I always rely on my clinical impression, and I'm very conscious of the fact that our colleagues in pre-hospital medicine may not have the, the same amount of experience that we have when it comes to dealing with febrile children. So our ability to pick up on the subtle changes that could be serious is much bigger because it's, you know, this is our specialty. This is what we do for a living. So I don't expect my colleagues in the pre-hospital medicine section to have the same amount of experience. And when we talk about the case, if I'm reasonably happy to leave the child in the community to be managed by their, you know, by antipyretics and constant supervision, that's fine. I would give that advice. But if I have a reason to suspect that this might be something more serious than that, then it's always worth bringing the child over to hospital and having a look at them myself. Often, you know, you find that the child is actually quite well. And by the time they present to hospital, the temperature settled down and they went back to their normal selves. But that would be reassuring for me, for you, and for everyone else, um, including the child and their parents. That type of step can look on the outside to be unnecessary, but within the um, 
the circumstances of the initial assessment, it would have been the appropriate course of action. The next question we have for you, um, we've already talked a little bit about uh, higher or more significant fevers and, and how um, the speed of the uh, temperature developing is is more relevant than the subjective temperature number on the thermometer. But in a, in a mildly, moderately unwell child, would you say that it's always necessary to bring the fever down using antipyretics? And this is a topic which is uh, often discussed in, in pre-hospital care. W- what's your thoughts on uh, whether we whether we always need to bring the fever down? It, it can be very worrying for the uh, child's parents and for every practitioner in the community. It can be very worrying that a temperature doesn't settle down with antipyretics. And this can actually happen with viral infections, and it can also happen in more serious infections. So again, that goes back to the point that I was making earlier. It all comes down to the experience of the person who's managing the child. Again, I do not expect my colleagues in, the, in, in pre-hospital medicine or in the primary care sector to have the same amount of experience when it comes to dealing with febrile children that I do or my colleagues in pediatrics medicine do. It's, it, it's down to how you feel when you're assessing the child. If you've given them antibiotic medication, paracetamol or, or, uh, or nurofen, and you've observed the child over the course of a half an hour or 45 minutes or even an hour, and the temperature hasn't settled down, then it's not unreasonable for you to seek further help. That could be a phone call to the pediatrics doctor, or even if we feel that the situation requires closer attention, then we'll bring the child over and we'll observe him ourselves. That's uh, really interesting, words. I think that's hopefully something that's going to create a lot of discussion and uh, and uh, a lot of thought. It's definitely something for me to think about. So in terms of our last question then, uh, which we'll just cover really quickly, if a child's had a previous febrile convulsion and you attend that same child for a second convulsion, if the child is well recovered, do they necessarily need conveyance or a hospital workup? Uh, not necessarily. If the child is back to their normal selves and their temperature settled down, they, they can be managed in the community. The, these types of presentations rely heavily on safety netting and managing the parents' expectations and understanding of, of the condition. A febrile convulsion is a, is a benign condition. It happens in children between the ages of six months and six years of age. It's common, and as I said before, it relates specifically to the speed at which the temperature goes up. If a child is known to have febrile convulsions, a typical febrile convulsion would be a generalized tonic-clonic seizure associated with the temperature resolving spontaneously within five minutes. Anything outside of this description is classified as an atypical seizure. At that point, they need to be brought to hospital for assessment regardless of any other factor. But within that specific description, a generalized tonic-clonic seizure with a high temperature that resolves spontaneously within five minutes is a typical seizure. And by the time you've seen the child, they've gone back to their normal selves, i.e. if the postictal phase is gone and the child is alert and happy and smiling, they're back to their normal selves, essentially. That's um, that, that child is safe to be kept at home. And basically, the parents should 
be made aware of the fact that if the seizure lasts longer than five minutes or if it's different, then they need to ring an ambulance and come to hospital for assessment. I, I think it's worth clarifying there just as a final point that uh, certainly from an ambulance uh, perspective we're talking about second or subsequent seizures rather than an initial presentation of 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 seizure which i think most services would uh, would expect to be conveyed well that was another long one so let's summarize fever is a natural response to infection The number itself isn't too concerning. What matters is how the child is with the fever and how they're coping with it. The exception to that rule, however, is in kids under three months, where we need to remember 38 degrees and above, and a child under six months, where we need to remember a fever of 39 or above. In both of these cases, the temperature is considered a red flag, regardless of other features that are present. We need to ensure we're taking this temperature properly. If they're large enough, we can use a tympanic, ensuring that we get the device into the ear canal properly. But if they're too wriggly or too young, we can always use a skin or oral thermometer. In kids who have a fever, it's important that we try and find the source of it. And that starts with a history take. Where children aren't critically unwell, sit down and speak to the parents. This lets the patient get used to you and lets you observe their normal behavior without you irritating them through assessment. Ask open questions. We need to ask about general health, obvious respiratory tract symptoms, how long they've had their fever and if it's been constant. And most importantly, we need to ask questions to help us assess how the child is tolerating the fever. Consider the patient's past medical history and how this may affect the situation. As we discussed, children with cerebral palsy may not present with a conventional fever. And if in doubt, ask the in-house experts, their parents. Our assessment should follow a structure. And if you're not too confident in what to do, the three-minute toolkit from the Spotting the Sick Child is excellent. It's thorough and it's what we use in our practice. And don't be afraid to make the child better. Fever will cause grouchiness, tachycardia, tachypnea, and the child to behave in a way that might concern the parents. Trialling some antipyretics and an oral fluid challenge before reassessing them can be really helpful when trying to decide what to do with them. And finally, we need to make a plan for this patient. The nice traffic light system is really helpful here, and it doesn't always mean conveyance to hospital. Many trusts may require clinicians to refer or share decisions around the discharge of particularly very young children, but this is very different to a mandatory conveyance policy. If you feel the right management for your patient isn't in the ED, then share your decisions with an expert. It's absolutely okay to discuss cases with paediatrics or general practice. We all want the best for our patients, so be an advocate for them and get them treated in the right environment. If we are discharging, we need to ensure that we do that properly with thorough worsening advice. Well, that's it for this month. Uh, Thank you so much, Waj, for joining us and adding in so much value to that episode. And all that's left is a request, and that's to you listening. If you like what we're putting out and want more free CPD, then you can really help us do that by telling people about the podcast and sharing us on social media. And thank you so much to those of you that have done that so far. And the other thing you can do is to leave us a review on iTunes. Don't think someone else will do it. We need you to. Because if nothing else, it really helps us to justify to our other halves all this time spent in a dark room editing a podcast. As always, there'll be an article on the website, generalbroadcast.org.uk, with references and links to further learning. And we really encourage you to check those out. If you've got any comments on the podcast or want to challenge us on anything we've said, then you can find our email and contact information there. But that's all for this month. Thanks again for listening and supporting us and join us again next month.